Causing the Effect, a podcast focused on the exploration of your mind, body, and spirit. Hey, Emily Sanders, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we did it finally. Uh, uh, yeah, I had COVID when we were supposed to do it the first time. And now yes. Emily got COVID, but she sounds wonderful. She looks wonderful. We're all we're all good. Uh, Emily's a therapist, psychotherapist. So um, specializing in relationships. Everybody knows that is something I could talk about for hours. I'm just curious. So, Emily, let's start with you and like this journey of yours. Um, where did it start? Did you know, like when you were young, I wanted to, to deal with people and be in this space or did it just kind of pop up in, in your twenties? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, because my parents were in a very public role, like very people service oriented. So I was always raised with the mentality that other people are more important than yourself, which that needs to be tweaked a little bit, but it's always been in my mind to serve other people. I think that's probably the language I would have used when I was young, but really I was raised to be a wife and a mom. And so I never once got asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. I never got asked about going to college, nothing like that. So um, I did end up going to college and my senior year of my bachelor's I was in um, some class related to counseling, and I remember thinking, huh, I think I could be good at at counseling. I should go to graduate school. I'd never had that thought before. I applied to one graduate school. I got in, and I swear, the first week, I can't even describe it. It was like fireworks went off inside of my brain. I feel so lucky because... It's something that fits me so well. And I swear it feels like it was an accident. Maybe it wasn't, I guess a little bit of following my intuition, but I feel, I feel so lucky. I love what I do, man. That's so, and I, I think I, I, this is like the mind and and figuring out what is going on. The human condition is something that I kind of stumbled upon. Like I was finance accounting and I'm like, what the hell is this stuff? This stuff is magic because it's interwoven in in everything in everything and, and yes. people who don't like understand that i just kind of feel bad i'm like but that's like let's talk about right now like that's kind of what you're doing and and that's why i kind of i don't know i i have thought about going back for it because there's something about particularly psychotherapy i'm a big carl mm-hmm. young guy and, sure. and you know really going deep into i guess the trauma we can talk about it but um but from your perspective what do you think is let's just say the, the biggest way to kind of get yourself more aware with, let's say the issues or where those weak weaknesses would be at the unconscious that, that people are dealing with. Like, how, how do you work through that with somebody? Well, you know, I think what's so important is curiosity. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that are naturally just very curious. They're curious about themselves. They're curious about the world. They're curious about other people. And for those individuals, therapy moves very quickly because there's already um, that, that pull inside of oneself to explore and to learn. And so those individuals tend to move and do really well in depth work, right? Because they just want to know. 
And for a lot of other people, though, there's not necessarily a curiosity about themselves, but they end up going through something really hard that forces themselves to look at themselves. So, um, yeah. No, that makes sense. Now, now as far mm-hmm. from kind of getting, uh, I know you, you made a post about this a couple of weeks ago. It was like getting clarity. Cause I mm-hmm. feel like, I don't know, something's going on this year with just, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of, you know, the thing I get from people like Scott, I don't know what to do in my life. How do you get clarity? I I know you focus more on relationships, but what are Mm -hmm. some ways that you would help a person kind of get their mind clear, whether it be with some therapy or outside of of that workspace? Sure. I think what's important first is just to honor the fact that there's some confusion that's taking place. And there's a lot of people that are so frightened of being confused that they plow themselves along in life. And there's a lot of people, especially um, individuals that I work with that have from a very young age set out a course that they feel like they're supposed to follow, right? I go to school and then I go to graduate school. And at some point in there, I'm supposed to get married and then I have a children and then I have the degree and whatnot. And all of a sudden they pop their head up in their thirties or forties and think, I don't, what? I picked this, but I feel like I didn't pick it. I've just been living with my head down. And so there is something actually that's really beautiful about feeling lost and feeling confused that really I think ends up being fodder for creating something different Mm -hmm. and um, wondering why there's unrest and wondering why something feels off. It's really powerful as painful as it is. It is, it creates such a pivotal moment for people if they deal with it correctly. And so for me as a therapist too, I'm sitting with my clients and trying to ask them questions that will lead them along to some Mm self-discovery. But those questions are so important. Allowing ourselves to question is beautiful. That's kind of you and you described my 20. So, you know, just went going on autopilot because for some reason I was so dead set by 28. Let's get married to a beautiful uh-huh. Italian girl. Let's make a million bucks and let's build a house. I did that. I'm like, shit, I didn't even want to do this. What happened? And for uh-huh. me, I realized it was I wanted to make the family happy. You wanted to kind of show even the world like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I'm normal. Like I wanted to put a stamp on my OK, I'm OK. And then you do that and you see yourself getting more destructive than ever. I was like, okay, that, that was not the right path. And I think people getting clarity on even what their own values are yes. in a world where you're being told constantly either who you are or what your identity is or what you, what you should do mm-hmm. is such um, a, a different thing. Cause I, that's the fun part of life is, is the meaning that you give it. It's not the meaning that somebody else gives it. So that, that even realizing like the fuck up for me, I was like, Oh, this is, you can kind of rebuild it and, and be in that loss moment. I think there was a, there was a point where I could have went one way that could have fell, fell sure. apart or kind of just rebuild. And mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've loved that rebuilding phase, but I'm sure you've dealt with people that it's could get messy at points. It, and it often is messy and it's so painful. I think it's painful to be at that place where you have to reassess your life and figure out what's got to stay and what's got to go. That, I mean, it's just a shitty place, but yeah, it's a beautiful springboard. I, in my work with clients too, I think that's why it's so important that if people are going to make sense of their present, that it really does involve looking backwards. Um, You know, our family of origin and the culture that we were raised in and messaging that we got in places like school or church or even TV shows, right? From a very, very young age, we're gathering all these little bits of the world and um, some of it's got to go and some of it's useful. 
Yeah. And that's the issue. I, I'll be honest. I've, I've, I'm on my seventh year of meditating and that spiritual journey. It's wonderful. I could see my thoughts and all that stuff, but the, the issue I have, or I guess the question I'll post to you, it's like, how, how do you find that balance or what is that balance of being in the present moment? We're going to be mindful. That's where it's the only thing that, mm-hmm. that really, that's really eternal, but also dabbling in this, you have to go backwards. And every time mm-hmm. I try to do my Carl Young shadow work, things get, things get, uh, things get messy quick. Like how, how do you, sure. I guess the answer is both, right? You have to look back and you have to be in the present, but I guess that is the art of, of the mind. Yeah. It's really challenging because you do have to live in the present, but you do have to revisit your past and you have to be aware that there's a future coming. And I, I think to make an overgeneralization, if people live too much in the future, there's a hell of a lot of anxiety there. And if people dwell too much in the past, there's a whole lot of depression and sadness and regret there. And so um, trying to stay present is important, but we are trying to go somewhere and we have also been somewhere. So trying to integrate all of those pieces is challenging. And you're right. It can be messy. Mm-hmm. How, how, when you're speaking to somebody about the, the backwards stuff, going back to the past, how do you coach them through that? How do you talk them through that? And I, I'm, I'm guessing that there's cues that you're picking up on that are kind of given where, the issue, where the issue lies, whether it's self-worth or whatever it may be. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that I often find myself asking very quickly in the first or second session, because again, more often than not, when people are coming to me, they're in some sort of crisis or they're hurting, their marriage is falling apart or whatever it may be. And I always want to know when they were younger, who did they go to for help? Who did they ask for help? Who did they ask for comfort? If they were sad or if they were angry, who did they go to? And what was that like? And what kind of answer did they get? And, you know, it makes people pause and and many people will say, well, I, I didn't go to anybody. I Well, then what did you do? Well, I cried in my room or I hid in a closet or I created fantasies in my mind or, you know, you can have someone else that says, well, I'd go to my mom and I didn't go to my dad, though. Well, why not? Oh, he was scary. He would hit me or whatnot. So there's a lot to be said about or that I can learn from hearing who somebody went to. Or, or did they have anybody for comfort? Um, because I'm wanting to know, well, what kind of coping skills are there? What kind of relational foundation is there for people? Um, are they comfortable asking for help? If they needed someone, was that there? Was there an option for help? Um, so it's, it's a really, it's a, a very important wow. question. That's yeah. a great question. And that really what you're seeing is how, how were you conditioned for your childhood? Like, what did that look like? Because yes. my answer to that would have been nobody. Um, mm-hmm. That would have been my answer. I guess that would have gave you some other ways to go. And mm-hmm. wow, that is a great, that, that is a, that is interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So then you have the person, let's say you get to that answer of it, whatever, whoever the answer may be is, mm-hmm. is part of this with that wound or that trauma. What does that look like? Is there a lot of investigating of it or is it more trying to let go of it or accept it? Like, what does that look like? Well, first part is even understanding it, right? Like it's really hard to come to a place of acceptance. If you don't even know what the hell you're accepting, like, what are we accepting? 
right? And there's a lot of people that will get, they'll get pissed at me. Well, what does it matter anymore? What does it matter anymore? Right? And it matters a lot because those foundational experiences lay out um, so many foundational experiences that follow. And so I want to know, well, has somebody now created an overcorrection where they never had anyone? So now as an adult, when they have someone, they cling on for dear life because they don't, they don't want to lose someone that they feel is wonderful or now has that translated to them being an adult and not letting them get close to anybody. And really what we're talking about a lot in that question too, is attachment, which is, I understand now it's very much like a pop psychology concept, but uh, it's actually a really big deal. And for me in my training as a therapist, I was primarily trying trained as a psychodynamic therapist, which means you're a little bit of like analytic Freud, old school stuff, nice. but also integrating attachment work. And so for, you know, children who consistently enough were cared for properly by their primary caregiver, more often than not, it's mama, but it could also be dad or grandparent, but more often than not, it's mom. Um, if they were cared for properly, then they feel secure, right? They think, well, goodness, I'm worth loving. And I know if I need help, I can mm. ask for help and I'm going to get it. And that creates a very confident person because they can grow up into an adult and know, hey, if I screw up big time, it's okay. Someone will help me and, and people will still like me and it's okay. They feel confident making mistakes, feel confident getting into relationships, but if people have a caregiver who sometimes gets it right and then sometimes is absent, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not, creates a lot of anxiety because then the kid learns, well, I don't know what I can expect because sometimes someone shows up for me, but sometimes they don't. And so that creates you know, a very anxious attachment. So they can grow up and with their friends and their romantic relationships, it's very fraught. They're very clingy and they're anxious because they don't know, like, can I trust that you love me? Can I trust that if I need you, you'll be there this time? And then there are other people that their primary caregiver was never there for them or very rarely. Maybe they met physical needs, but not emotional needs. And so those adults often grow up and think, well, that's me, myself, and I, I just depend on myself. Why would I even hope that someone would be there for me? I've learned to do it myself. And so it's a little harder for those individuals to get close and stay close. Cause why would they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, just, yeah. No, that that's interesting. And I, that was the, the piece I was in. It's, it, if somebody shows up, it's, it's about even if they do show up, it's about how they show up in the manner mm -hmm. they showed up. Like my mother, single mom, crushed it. Love my mother. Always there. Give the sheriff back. But the way that she would react to things was just a little huh, like anxiety driven, which, you mm -hmm. know, I, I could understand some of it now. But going through the process of what you're describing, it's like, oh. Well, that's why I got some anxiety. Like just everything is always, I feel like anything, anytime, and this happens, people kind of email me about this. We discussed it. Like when something goes a little off course, it becomes such a big issue that it's like, yeah. what is that? Like, wh why is that? And um, so you're saying that going back and understanding that, just even understanding that that is the way that attachment was create, created for you mm -hmm. should give you some sort of ease that it's like, it's more of just reconditioning that piece. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And typically where it will end up tracking different patterns, right? Different relationship patterns. We're making sense of it. And the more that sense is made, we can kick around different things to tweak. Or what if this time you gave this a shot? Why don't you see how it feels? And challenging people to be more vulnerable and and things like that. So creating that understanding, that awareness is really, really key. Um, you know, I know that people love acceptance and I see acceptance so much more as an ending space, not a starting place. And perhaps it's a little bit of both. I don't know. Maybe it's not completely fair, but there's a lot of people who say, well, I've just accepted that my dad beat me. or I've just accepted like, yeah, that is what it is. So what? But they've, they're clinging so tightly that they've never let themselves grieve. They've never thought about what they've lost. They've never thought about the cost that's come. It's just, they have to tighten down. And there's so much grief really that has to take place before there's a true peaceful acceptance. Grief. If that makes sense. No, no, no. I'm processing it. Grief, vulnerability, like how... How, I mean, as a, as working with a dude, I can only imagine what's like being vulnerable. Like, how do you get somebody to be vulnerable? Well, you can't make anybody, can you? I mean, even showing up to therapy in and of itself is a very vulnerable thing. And it's not uncommon for people to come to therapy, (laughs) then completely wall me out. And so at that point, typically what I do as a therapist is I try and speak to what it's like for me to sit with that person. Right. And I could say anything from like, well, you know, you're saying that you want help, but you're not really wanting to share anything with me. And I wonder if that's what it's like when you're with your friends. You so want to be with them, but you it's hard to open up or whatever it could be. Mm -hmm. But I'll say, oh, I'm here with you, but you feel so far away. You feel so far away. Where did you go? Whatever. I mean, it depends on the person. Right. Um. And what kind of relationship and history we've already built, or if it's brand new, right? Like I got to respect that people have to learn to trust me too. Um, so yeah, it really depends on the person. That this, the, the psychotherapeutic work is, is there things that people can do by themselves that are effective that you kind of give homework in a way? Okay, so I'm not a big homework person. Personally, I'm not a big homework person, but my homework tends to sound like, um, well, what if you just noticed when you wanted to speak up, but don't or something like that? Like mm-hmm. I encourage people to notice or be aware of themselves. And sometimes there may be a challenge to go and share a specific thing with somebody. But in general, I'm not a big homework person because I tend to have a lot of very high overachieving individuals. And most people want to do. They would so much rather do than feel, right? Like I can watch someone visibly getting more anxious on my couch. And it's like, okay, Emily, so then what do I do? Give me a book. And it's like, well, what if we just sat with the fact that you're really anxious? It's not going to kill you. What if you just let yourself be? Maybe it's not a time to do more. Maybe it's a time to do less. So again, there's a big split in humanity. Some people do need to be encouraged to try harder and some people need to be encouraged to try less. So it kind of depends on the person. And with trying less, it would be feeling more. Yeah, which kind of blows. I know no just, one likes I'm, it. Every- <laughs> I'm a doer, Emily. I'm a doer. I'm like, give me what's the steps? What's the procedures yes. to do this to get better? Um, 
Yeah. No, and I, I guess with the okay, so you're dealing with a lot of perfectionists, I'm assuming, and the doers. How like I know you're a relationship person. Doesn't it, it starts? You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Does it not start with the relationship you have with yourself and understanding how you treat yourself in a way? Yeah, but see, this is the kicker. So for me, again, as someone who's really into relationships, where do we learn to treat mm. ourselves? Like, where do we learn messaging about ourselves? It's in relationships. And unfortunately, those formative years, especially in the first five years of life with your parents, really do teach you so much about our self-worth, how we self-regulate. You know, you're not born with the ability to calm yourself down. That's a thing that you learn. And so it is so hard to separate how we see ourselves and, and how we experience the world, separate that from our relationships. So for me, even if I'm not say I'm not doing couples work or I'm not doing family therapy, I am always thinking about my individual client in the context of their family, in the context of their society and how their first formative relationships really impacted the way that they see themselves. So it, we can't, we can't separate the two. Because, They're very, very yeah. interwoven. Yes. Because by the time we get to this thinking part and we're trying to figure out the relationship with ourselves, all of that is a manifestation of the way the relationships were between those ages of zero to five. Mm-hmm. It's really foundational. And that doesn't mean that there, things can't be healed and changed and shifted. But I mean, those are such pivotal years. Um, and, and we are really shaped by our parents, like it or not. I don't like that's why it's a hell of a I it's a well I have three children and I you know ignorance is bliss (laughs) and you know there are times I sit with my husband like screw the college fund we need a therapy (laughs) fund you know because even the most well-meaning parents like you don't get to walk away from childhood without at least a few nicks and a few little scrapes so yeah was, was there something in your childhood or something that a Nick or a trauma that you think made you feel good to be on this path of trying to help other people in their relationships? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, I could I could go on and on about that. Thank you to my own therapist. Um, but <laughs> I have often thought, you know, in general, we we seek to give others what we didn't receive. Right. That is a correction that we tend to make as we move into adulthood. And I think it's actually one of the most beautiful parts of our woundings, right? Is that it gives us an urge to reach out and care for other people. But I think if I was to think about my own life and okay, here I am as a therapist and I so value listening to other people. Um, I don't, I, I, if I think back on my childhood, I think my parents did a good job of taking care of me, but there wasn't a lot of space to listen to me or to really understand me. You know, I love my parents. They have a very rigid view of the world and they have a very rigid view of, of me and how my siblings and I were supposed to be in the world. And, um, they did, they really did want perfect. And, um, we were in a fishbowl of our own. They had a bit of a public role. And so there was a lot of reinforcement from other people feeling like we should also be perfect too. And um, 
I had a lot of people criticizing me growing up, whether that was my dress was too short or I wasn't allowed to use the word stupid or whatnot. And so um, I think now as an adult and especially in my therapy room, it's so important for me that people come and feel understood and heard and that there's no pressure to be anything for me. So I really value that a lot. No, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, when um, yeah, you're saying zero to five, and I'm like, I had a Emily. I'll give you the quick quick run. Everybody knows on the story knows this, but my my father disappeared when I was like four to five, and mm-hmm. he went into the um the witness protection program, and I didn't know about any of this until like he just got up and left. So I guess you know from four five to like twenty seven twenty eight, you not know what what happened to your dad. It was like a bit of a Damn. trauma, uh, and I found out. Uh, two years ago, what happened? My grandfather got out of jail and I met him and he said, your dad put me in jail. So my father put his grandfather mm. in jail. Imagine that shit. That's going to be a movie. Emma. It's going to be a whole yeah. thing. It's going to be wonderful. But I, I guess knowing that did give me more comfort of a sense of like, okay, it wasn't like, you know, you're broken or the self-worth and classic guy stuff, whatever confidence, but it's like shit. Yeah. Even knowing that analytically, the feeling side, it's still that condition for like 20 years, like you're not enough or whatever that is. Right. Yes. Yeah. And like trying to fill that bucket, it's like, okay, you become successful in the material world. Now I'm trying to become successful in the spirit. It's like, how much do I have to keep doing to like think of myself as a su- success in a way? And it's like, that's, that's like, was that was the yeah. little insight I had of myself. Like, is this just what it is? Like, you're going to keep trying to fill a, a bucket that's really unfillable. Did you come up with an answer? With how much it, not yet, not yet. Yeah. Yeah. It is quite a story. You're right. And children are narcissistic, right? And they, though, especially at the age of five or six, um, everything does relate to them. If something goes wrong, Mm. or if there's a fallout with my parent, there is something, you know, it was me and kids tend to shift out of that space, you know, around 10, 11, 12, like you'll hear kids when they're 12 and let's say their parents get a divorce, they don't necessarily think it's their fault, but a little kid often does. Mm. And it's so hard for things not to make sense, right? Like when we have a gap between what happened and what we think should have happened or what would have been the right thing. And we don't have sense to be, maybe we don't have answers. We fill in the blanks with a lot of stuff and you filled it in with you not being good enough, huh? Yeah. And like yeah. people, I guess people remember a lot more from the childhood than I did. I don't remember a lot. And I guess that's like repression and something's going on there. So it'll sure. probably, yeah, something will pop up there. But um, no, for me, it's been more the podcast is helping me discuss this stuff with you guys and therapists. It's just like it's more I, I've I try to wear it as like so people could hear it and be like, OK, well, if she went through that. I can go through my thing or something because sure. Um, nothing's really going to kill you in the end. Um, it's just that going backwards to understand that trauma. When I started my meditation, when I started my meditation, uh, when I was getting deep into it, it was like two hour sessions. I had this weird thing. It was like the FBI pulling me away from my father. I'm like, that's not real. That's like from a movie or whatever it is. And then like last year, my aunt was like, do you remember when your dad got pulled out from your hands from the FBI? I was like, holy shit. Like this stuff is, is unbelievable. Like that was a repressed thing that kind of popped up and, um, it's it just, um, there's, there's probably a lot there to kind of uncover. Like, do, do, you, yeah. do you suggest, um, like a morning ritual for your, for your clients, like to clear their mind or to keep themselves more grounded? 
I mean, that depends on the person. Um, I will just say, sorry to go back for a no, second. No, please go like, back. Yeah. yeah, I mean, stuff gets repressed, right? Supposedly, you know, our psyche filters stuff out that feels too distressing. And that's for our protection, right? Things, okay, well, self can't handle this memory. So that's okay. We'll, we'll tuck it away in the closet for a little while. And it'll get pulled out when they're strong enough. So I, I think actually, I would say it's, Kind of impressive that you got given a piece back, right? There's something in you that's strong enough to tolerate that memory because honestly, that would be hella traumatic. Like it really would be, Scott. It's just yeah. really sad. Um, it's heartbreaking. And yeah. No, I know. I had yeah. I think, you know, it's um it's been interesting like uncovering it because I think my mother didn't have, like my mother really meant well, but she I think what she was saying. Cause I don't know. Really, she was, she was, she was like, your dad wants nothing to do with you. So I'm like, mom, this probably wasn't the best thing to say. Oh, mom. Yeah, mom was not <laughs> Caroline. You're listening. I'm sorry, Kat. but I think it was just, she did the best she could. She really was just trying. Yes. And, it, and I think the, the old school Italian Brooklyn way of like, just feelings, put those things away. And like, when you have somebody like me, I'm like, my, I'm all feelings. Like, I was like, like I told my mom, I was like, um, when I was going to college, I'm like, Ma, I really want to do some psychology or philosophy, like your mind. She's like, what are you going to work at the psychology factory? She's like, you're, you're, are you going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or, or finance? Like, pick one. It's like, shit. Like, that's so, it was rough around the edges, but she's, yeah. com- she's coming around now. She's coming around a little bit. So, yeah. And, and probably as much as she can handle, for yes. sure. Yes. Yeah. So, morning ritual, going back to your question, I mean, it just depends on what some people need, right? So, Again, some people try harder. Some people are trying to biohack their way through life, and that's great. Um, some people need that containment, and they need structure. And other people need to loosen up on their structure. Free. I think it depends on what works. It works for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you done any therapy? I mean, you keep talking about therapists and talking about here and um, your shadow and all that shit. Have you? I had- did. Yeah. So I did therapy when I was 23 and it was not for anything pertaining to this. It was okay. Now we're going to uncover another story for, for uh, nobody's heard this one. My uncle who was like my father. So my father was gone, right? So we're 20 to 23. I was hanging out with my, my, my uncle was like my, um, my father at this point, he mm-hmm. gets brain cancer and passes away within like two months. He, oh. Yeah. It was very, very heavy. Very sudden. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very sudden. Um, and he, I don't know what happened, but I was in the car with him when we took him to the hospital last time. So you could say he passed away in the car with us or whatever. Sure. So after that, I was like, let me go to a psychiatrist. And mm. I just felt like he was trying to give me drugs, like right off the bat. Uh, he was, I think, well, that's, that was his job. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, I probably wasn't the, maybe I went to a psychotherapist then. Cause I guess you, you don't yes. prescribe drugs. So maybe I should have done yeah. that because they put me on whatever is like the usual Lexapro or something. I just didn't feel, I was like, I don't like this. Like, I just didn't like it. I, I would say I didn't give it enough, um, enough time. So there was, there was that, yeah. that, that was maybe two months. And then I did six months of marriage therapy, which I thought was amazing and it went well, but okay. the ex-wife didn't like it too much. So that's, that's ex. really, sure. hence the ex. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So side note for any of your listeners. Yes, there's a difference between a a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. And obviously you've learned this now, Scott, but a psychiatrist, they are a medical doctor who are, who is there to treat your symptoms with medication. So they are the ones that you would go to, 
to get a prescription for your mental health issue. But a psychotherapist, their treatment is talking. And there are lots of psychotherapists that have different ways that they approach their work and different ways that they do talk therapy. So there's a ton of variation even within that world. But um, yes, for people who are seeking medication, you're going to go to a psychiatrist and your psychiatrist does not do talk therapy. Yeah. That I yeah. think unless 23, who knows if I want to spoke to anybody. I was like a far faced yeah. kid, but <clears throat> I think for any, I mean, I guess you could tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems I feel like a, if you're going to a psychiatrist, that would be something a little bit more severe. Oh, it just not necessarily in, in general, if someone is dealing with depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, they have heavy anxiety. They're going to get the best outcomes by doing both. There are some individuals that they come to me for therapy and I hear their symptoms. And a lot of people may say that they don't want medication and I'll say, okay, well tell me why. And that's fine. Why don't we try this line of treatment? And we're going to check in and assess in a few months. And you may find that you have better outcomes with doing some medication in addition. And some people really do need the medication support. There are some people that their emotional and mental symptoms are so high that I can't even get in there to do talk therapy because Mm -hmm. their emotions or, or even some of their mental symptoms are so intense that we, I can't even get in there. So some people really do need medication to help calm them and bring things down a notch to be able to make talk therapy effective. There are some individuals, their mental health diagnosis will require them perpetually being on medication and, and that's okay. So it just depends on, yeah, it just depends on the need, but in general, if somebody is taking a, a, a medication of some kind, they really should be doing some talk therapy in addition mm, that okay. I, I do think that's ideal, but yeah, not everybody can get into or afford a therapist. So I, re- I respect that too. No, definitely. And I love the, I guess, yeah, there was a psychotherapist for the marriage. I loved it. Cause it was like, it was like, and I was, I was this Scott, I was like, this is going to be wonderful. Her uh-huh. issue, you know, my, the ex-wife's issue was more, you know, being a little nitpicky. My issue was just reaction. So I was just like, just become, became Zen. And, um, you know, it just didn't, uh, maybe by that point it was too late. It was six months. I thought I thought we had a shot at fixing it, but you know, it, these things yeah. sort of happen. Now, now, another question I have for you is: This is like an email I get. I guess even the way I feel, um, people that ask me, it's like you know, I feel. Let's say I wrote this down because you actually posted something about this. Okay, you often feel used or taken advantage of, right? You feel like others take you for granted. You're not. You don't feel like you're enough, right? How? Do you tell if that is reality or is this you making up the story in your mind because of the way your relationships were growing up? Sure. Sure. Well, for me as a therapist, it's important that before I decide whether this person is right or wrong, that I have to jump into their world with them. Mm-hmm. And some people do um, enhance their stories too right? Like they make it sound worse on purpose than it is. And there are some people that really downplay their experience. So I'm just trying to align myself with the individual's way that they see the world and the way they see themselves. And then I'm listening for um, what's being said and what's not being said. And so there are a lot of people who do find that they're being taken 
advantage of or being taken for granted that in general, they, they haven't set up any ways to protect themselves in the world. They don't require anything back from the people that they are giving to. Uh, there are a lot of people that find themselves in very one-sided relationships. Um, and then there are other people that they have a very self-sabotaging behaviors where they feel like things are one-sided, but then I'm also hearing that when people try to give them back, they don't receive it. They don't accept it. They don't trust it. They don't allow for it. So it, it really depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Mm. And probably not even, that's something I, I've seen with myself. Like, don't even acknowledge it. Like, I'm only focusing on like the negative the thing the person didn't do when you have all these people mm-hmm. around you doing the, the positive stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think is, is some of the, the most underlooked, I guess, values or pieces of, uh, of a relationship, like a real couple relationship, marriage or, or any relationship for that matter? What do you mean under values? Like when you say val- when I say value, like, is it the, the, the the way that the couple shows love is it the is it the way that they communicate is it the way that like what some things that are overlooked that are so kind of crucial when you're when you're building a relationship sure i i wish that more people understood that when you are creating a relationship that you have your shit they have their shit and then the couple comes together and they co-create shit And, you know, a real safe relationship, ideally, there is safe to be able to share experiences with one another, and that your partner would be mindful of your hurt and of your wounding and of your sensitive spots. And, and, um, you know, nobody is perfect. And there are a lot of people that say, oh, well, no one's perfect. No relationship's perfect to, as a way to excuse bad behavior. And I don't think that that's healthy because of course we're not going for perfect, but how does a couple manage and handle the imperfect? And so we all have weaknesses and we're wanting a partner that learns how to deal lovingly with one another's weaknesses, not weaponize them against them, not take advantage of them, not take cheap shots in tender moments. Um, And it's really, really important because it all contributes to trust and safety. And um, yeah, I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, no, it definitely does. And I think that also, I guess if you were that way or petty or however that would get, the person would become would would not want to be as vulnerable going forward, which kind of makes the wall even even harder um, and and thicker. Because I always looked at relationships. It's not like a tit for tat thing like. Emily's here. She has her things and we have to give her certain things. And I'm here and you have, you have your things and I need my certain things. So, so it's not so much like a one for one. It's more like apples and oranges because especially men and women, it's just a totally, everybody just has these different things that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You're trying to figure out what is healthy compromise look like. There are things that I do for my husband that they don't particularly bring me joy, but because I love him, <laughs> I'm happy to see him happy and he'll do the same thing for me. And so I'm not scared that if I'm going to give that I'm never going to receive back. We have the mutual respect. I know that if I give or if I sacrifice, I'm also going to be receiving benefit from it in some way. And so we're not out here for there to be a power struggle. We're trying to be a team. We're trying to be a partnership. And, you know, we've been married 16 years. It's still something that we're working on. 
you know, but we've invested heavily relationships, healthy, satisfying relationships. They take a lot of work and understanding what that work looks like is really important because that doesn't mean constantly being cheated on or belittled or feeling like you're fearful. You don't know where your money is going or things like that. There are a lot of relationships that people choose to exist in that are terrifying and unsatisfying and demeaning and demoralizing. That's not the kind of work we're talking about people. Mm. Right. So yeah. Wow. Oh my God. And well, thank you so much for your time. This was so yeah. useful. I'm going to be, I'm going to be really watching this one. Cause I, I, I think there's some more, more tidbits here. So I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. No problem. Everybody on YouTube, just uh, leave this, hit the subscribe button. If you're listening, as always, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate all the support. Um, as always, stay, stay, stay safe, stay positive, stay blessed. Bye-bye.